everybody, welcome back to another episode of Dispatches from the Front. This is episode number 19. Uh, Tom and I are recording this on March 22nd, 2020, also known as the middle of maybe apocalypse. Tom, how are you? I'm great. I am uh, COVID-19 free and good, what good. better way to, to, you know, make the best of this time than to, to talk Star Wars. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So as, as mentioned in our previous episode, we are covering Star Wars, the Phantom Menace, uh, here today. We're we're also going to try to keep this like PG 13 ish because it is Star Wars and we know that folks might want to hear us talk about it. Well, well, a lot of you listening to it probably aren't at work or working from home, but you may have kids around and that kind of stuff. So we're we're not going to go full out like we do with with a lot of our our war movie reviews here. Um, so we are going to we're going to tone things down a bit. But yeah, these are kind of some crazy times. Uh, you know, before we get into that, let's just kind of hit our standard preamble here. You know how to send us feedback. You can email us dispatches at randomchatter.com. You can hit us up on Twitter, catch the network at Random Chatter, catch me at Qui-Gon Tim, that is Tim with two M's. And for those of you who don't know where that comes from, you're actually going to discover that today. Uh, Tom, where where can they find you on Twitter? At Thomas L. Harper. It's like the most creative Twitter handle of all time. I want to go back 10 years and just high five myself for that one. Yeah, it's uh, uh, that's really boring, Tom, and um, we need to we need to change that. I've thought about that. it at times, and then I've I've thought about the logistics of uh, doing that. Not I wouldn't create a new account. I guess you can create a new. Can you create a new handle yes. for the same account? Yes. I have cards made up that I have that I hand out when I meet folks you know, <laughs> at conventions and stuff, and that would require redoing those, and that costs true. money. Yeah, yeah, we'll stay with true uncreative right now (laughs) uh let's see you can find all of our shows over at randomchatter.com you can certainly we we definitely appreciate you spreading the word and supporting us uh please find dispatches from the front uh on itunes or any other place where you happen to get us and leave us reviews uh especially written reviews if you can take a few moments and and write something in write in a, a a few sentences about why you enjoy the show um if if you do like you know if you do enjoy the show i mean not that we're afraid of negative reviews but uh you know i mean hey if you have something negative shoot us an email let us know and you know we'll we'll try to fix that if we can uh but you know we we do like positive reviews reviews are a great thing it's what brings more people to us to hear our babbling so if you like our babbling maybe others will too uh, you can also contribute to us. You can actually become a member. Random Chatter is a nonprofit organization. We're a membership organization. Uh, and membership um, is by way of, of Patreon. Uh, so if you go to randomchatter.com slash Patreon, uh, different membership levels get, get you different perks. We have levels from, we have defined levels at $1, $5, and $10. Uh, you can give anywhere in between. You get the the level um, just below that uh, unless you've you've hit the next level up and certainly we don't discourage anyone from from giving more we definitely appreciate that it helps keep the lights on here uh at the network and helps us with our distribution and all that good stuff 
Uh, you can also join us. Uh, we, we have convers- a lot of conversation over in Discord. Uh, if you head to randomchatter.com slash Discord, the public gets full access to our lobby and our show channels, including our show channel here. And we have a handful of other channels that we have included in there. Uh, one is actually a, a, a coronavirus channel. Um, obviously, this is something that is, it's big, it's, it's, it's in the news, it's truly impacting all of us. Every person in the freaking world is somehow impacted by this. I, I think there's maybe only a small handful of countries that this hasn't hit yet. And I'm seriously questioning the numbers coming out of North Korea or not coming out of North Korea. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, though that said, I'm not so sure that we have a lot of listeners in North Korea. But hey, if we do, you know, that's that's awesome. Thank you. We we appreciate it. Maybe you don't uh, appreciate some of our political views, but it's all good. Uh, (laughs) um, But yeah, so we... Obviously, a lot of people have been talking about it, and uh, through the nature of of my work, um, I keep up on it. I've been dealing with it with clients and that kind of stuff, and so a lot of people were asking me questions, so we figured we would have a channel where we would kind of keep the vast majority of that collected so the other channels could still be kind of normal, and you could still have a conversation about the latest Clone Wars episode that dropped without having to talk about coronavirus. So we, we do have a channel there and it's been really good. We, we keep any like speculation and rumors and that kind of stuff out of there. We, we don't want fear mongering. We don't want any of that. We just simply, we want a good exchange of information. We want facts. Um, and, and, you know, also kind of some people, this, this is a very interesting and different time for, for all of us. And so, um, I think, you know, people have some concerns and so sometimes they just kind of put their concerns out there and say, Hey, you know, what about this? So, uh, it's, it's been a, I think a real nice thing for our community to have there. And it also helps keep really a lot of the other channels fairly, uh, coronavirus free. Uh, any membership through Patreon will get you full access to our discord community. And we do have like, we have spoiler channels in there for the latest clone wars episodes, uh, speaking of of Star Wars and for uh, other movies and TV and and we talk about our pets and things at home and all sorts of things, um, lots of other pop culture stuff. Obviously, is is what we do. So uh, that is all of our stuff there. So um, yeah, so I kind of on to our discussion here. But we did figure we want to talk a little bit about this whole coronavirus thing. Take a few minutes. We're not going to dominate the episode. Uh, but it is, it's, it's timely and relevant and you know, what, 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 what kind of stuff are you experiencing, Tom? How, how has this changed life for you and your family? It's, it's really fluid here in Pennsylvania. Uh, if, for those of you who don't know, I'm about an hour North of Philadelphia in Allentown. And so we're in really close proximity. It's almost to- should write a song about that place. Yeah, they should, you know, if, if I could just go back time, I would just call it probably Allentown, you know, just make it real well, simple like that. Yeah. You know, yeah. it would probably be a, like a all time hit, you know, something that would, it could be, be played. Yeah. Well, you have to find a really good singer, someone yeah. well known, somebody good at the piano. Yeah. Oh, totally. Totally. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> when I get my time machine, I'm going to, I'm going to do that. I'm I'm like the sad version of that uh, that movie yesterday where the guy wakes up and nobody remembers the Beatles. I'd be like, oh yeah, oh, yeah. 
Nobody remembers Allentown by Billy Joel. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Anyways, yeah. So we're we're real close to to New York. Probably I can make it to the city in an hour and a half if traffic is decent. Mm -hmm. And obviously we're I'm 30 minutes from the New Jersey line. And those two places, those two states are are pretty big epicenters for uh, outbreaks. And so naturally, you know, being in that close tri-state cluster, we're, we're in a position, a weird position where the governor has to sort of react to developments in those two states in addition to what's happening elsewhere in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And so it's created this weird situation like Thursday night, uh, Thursday, as I'm getting ready to leave work, the governor issued a shutdown order for all, uh, non, uh, was it life sustaining businesses mm-hmm. and, and promulgated a big list of companies well, not, not specific companies, but types of companies. Uh, so it was an Excel spreadsheet that was categorized by like manufacturing, professional services, that sort of thing. And it just had a, a you know, a either yes or no column for whether you could stay open. Sure. And then, so businesses were, were supposed to shut down uh, Thursday night. Enforcement actions by the state were going to start on Saturday morning. And quickly that caused some controversy because there were companies like there's a, a Charmin factory not too far from here that would have been forced to shut down by the initial order. And so we don't need that. Who would ever make a run on toilet paper in a time like this? You know, you get your water, get your bread, get your milk, but you know, you can. Which is pretty ridiculous, by the way. I want to find the person who started this whole stupid toilet paper thing. And I, I, not that we promote violence. Well, we we are a war film review podcast, (laughs) so I guess I can't say that. If it's well choreographed violence, yeah, yeah. But truthfully, I want to punch this person right in the face. I, I mean. There is absolutely zero reason for us to have a, a run on toilet paper. I, I I don't understand why this is happening. The, the toilet paper thing, the water thing, I mean, it's not like the water supply is going to be contaminated. I, I mean, people have tried to justify this, especially early on, saying, well, you know, if we are all going to be forcibly locked in our homes, we, we, we need to have these things because we don't want to run out. Well, yeah, okay, but while there's a lot of restrictions that have been put on, I don't think that we are going to end up in the situation of you can't go out and these things aren't going to be available to you unless you actually do have the, you know, you do contract COVID-19, which by the way, that's the difference for people who don't know. Coronavirus is a virus. COVID-19 is the disease you get from the virus. It's kind of like HIV AIDS type of thing. And... But in that case, like if you actually do have it and you are staying in your house, you will get supplied with the things that you need. So I, it, it, some of this stuff just concerns me. And then that leads – the majority of it has simply been panic buying where people see, oh my gosh, there's hardly any toilet paper left. If Even though I don't need some, if I don't get some now – when I do need some, maybe next week, there's not going to be any left. So I have to get as much as I can. And so then it just self-perpetuates. And it's a very crazy psychological thing that I, we just need everyone to stop. Like it's nuts. <laughs> yeah. It really is. Well, it's a lot. The, the funny thing that I saw, and this is pertinent given our 
the type of podcast that this is. But I saw a meme that had a picture of the tiny little pack of toilet paper that comes in the MRE <laughs> for the military. And it said, some of us have been training for this type of environment for, for forever. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it, Tom. Do you do you have any guilt? Like, uh, not not to really get a lot of detail about you in the bathroom, but are you having like guilt when you're using toilet paper? Like, I really gotta like, I shouldn't be going nuts with it. I you know, <laughs> I we operate our house like that episode of Seinfeld where Elaine's trying to borrow a square, just a single square of toilet paper, and <laughs> can't get a square. That's right. a, we've got our toilet paper metered. You get. Six squares per use. <laughs> that that can be flexed to, to 15 if the circumstances warrant, but you have to pl- apply for an exception. So not only do we have the, the, you know, the military rationing of supplies here, but we've also, because, you know, I'm a lawyer, we I have to implement some, some measure of red tape and um, mm-hmm. bureaucracy to the whole thing. Oh, absolutely. So absolutely. I've got an application form. My wife knows where they are. so since we are a a war film uh review podcast so we we do focus on a lot of military stuff um what is what is the defense department doing what what are you hearing uh i mean you are you're a reservist uh so you're not out there right now but you are in the loop on on a lot of things at least the stuff that they are communicating uh, widely to to members. So, what are what what are you hearing? It it really varies depending on what component you're in, and I say component because the active duty, <clears throat> the Army Reserve, and the National Guard are are operating in three very different functions right now, mm-hmm. um, which is what they were built for. I, the yep. the biggest thing has been a stop movement that's been applied across the the entire DoD, and that's that's something that was that sort of sent sent it home to me, um, and this happened, gosh, beginning of last week, end of the week before. Mm-hmm. I don't think I, I haven't seen in my career or lifetime uh, a stop movement order like this, where uh, folks that are supposed to be moving from base to base uh, on active duty, their their travel is shut down. Official travel is all shut down. Um, you know, my wife and I are JAG officers, so. Uh, we typically will travel to represent soldiers at different hearings and whatnot. Those are all shut down right now. Um, so they're really locking down non-essential movement. And then this has been a great example of, of the role that the national guard plays state to state, because this is, and I, you know, won't, won't dominate a bunch of time with this, but you know, this is a dual entity force, like the national guard in each state technically uh, could get called up to active duty. You see National Guard units go and, and fight in Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. But they belong to the governor. So the governor, if you know, under normal circumstances, is their first, you know, their other commander-in-chief, for lack of a better term. Right. And so governors each control their own state National Guard. And, and you're seeing that play out across the country as National Guard units are being used in different capacities. The federal government has the power to call them up to an, uh, a nationwide mission, but that's not what's being done right now. And and so New York is using their guard in one way, um, different than Pennsylvania. Some National Guard units have just been put on alert. Others are actively doing missions. Um, the 
interestingly that like the jag corps at the active duty level is providing a ton of uh, domestic support uh, operations advice right now because you've mm-hmm. got an unprecedented level of and and it's only going to increase cooperation between military and civil authorities across mm-hmm. the country and that is its own body of military law and and its own um really its own operational body um you know yeah. domestic civil support operations are very different than you know combat operations for obvious reasons and so uh a lot of folks are these folks are professional and well trained i mean you're in this field so you work with folks that are highly trained in this area but it's not yep. something that it's something that folks train on extensively but um you know we don't have this this sort of scale operation going on all that often so yeah it's um there there's actually just to throw a a a good reference out there um West Point does the uh, Modern War Institute podcast, and uh, their latest episode, March 18th, was um, it's titled, What Can the U.S. Military Do to Support the COVID-19 Response? And basically, the entire episode, uh, it's, it's just over half an hour long, is about defense support to civil authorities. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the guest in there goes over the state active duty, Title 32, Title 10 stuff, uh, like you said, Tom, I mean, that's, that's, that stuff is my primary interface, um, in terms of, of, of the military. Um, I've done a lot of that interface for defense support, civil, civil authority stuff, um, state active duty title 32, um, which is basically the, the governor's control of, of the national guard. Like you were talking about title right. 10 is when they become, uh, when they become federalized and, and then they are, uh, fully under the auspices of, uh, DOD and, and, and the president and, you know, national guard units have, uh, just such a, a wide swath of capability. Um, and there are folks, I mean, you have a lot of folks who, who practice medicine, um, in, in some range, everything from your, kind of like field medic type of people to nurses and doctors, all that stuff with, within this swath of, um, of the guard and with certain specialized teams and specialized units. Um, there are teams that are trained, uh, to work in, uh, hazardous materials types of situations, be it chemical, biological, nuclear, uh, radiological, any of that stuff. Um, uh, and, and those are actually the folks who I tend to interface with the most uh, in, in, in my line, because that's where we tend to see the largest propensity for that interface. Um, and they're actually leveraged some of those, uh, or at least elements of some of those teams are leveraged quite a bit. Like if you have, of course, we don't have them now, <laughs> they're temporarily <laughs> suspended, but you have, uh, especially like a very high profile sporting event or something like that there are elements from the state national guard, which uh, are typically requested to be there. Oftentimes they are not in uniform, so they are not going to jump out at you, but they will be there with like specialized detection equipment. So they can be looking for radiological traces and chemical traces and, and, and even some biological stuff. So a lot of really cool capability there and they can do work in these clandestine environments. And, um, I, I help run a lot of exercises with these types of teams. Um, I was actually last in, I think it was the first week of December, 
uh, I was in uh, in Texas for the whole week working with uh, Texas's team and Louisiana's team for uh, yeah for the whole week doing this stuff and um, yeah I I enjoy working with those folks and so there there is a lot out there but it's really interesting and it's nuanced and like you said Tom it's it's cool to to think about and I hadn't even considered it where like the involvement of the JAG Corps because while there is so much doctrine on defense support to civil authorities. We haven't seen this much of it leveraged or potentially leveraged since 9-11. And this is still in a very different capacity than from what we saw in the 9-11 response. So while you think you have everything charted out, sometimes you don't. And a lot of doctrine oftentimes is open to interpretation. And that's where we lean on folks like you, uh, to, to give us that interpretation and chart us the best path ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, they're running basically 24 hour ops on, on that. So they've got somebody persistently available, uh, to, to provide advice for scenarios. And, you know, what it's interesting how it's all very fluid because, you know, effectively they'll, they'll be there to monitor and, and sort of like a lifeline where, um, if there's a given, uh, question or something like that. Somebody wants to do something, or, or typically they'll get a request, like a um, you know an active duty unit that that's you know an integral part of the community that they're uh, situated in. Will get a request from local authorities or or the commander uh, down there wants to help in some way. Uh, they need to be able to to uh, bounce that off and and work through that that planning uh, to make sure that it's uh, that it's being done right. Yeah, and sometimes they, you know, it's it's sort of the opposite way around as well. They're they're spitballing ideas, and and they may not be aware of certain authorities that they have, um, just because you know, whether you're a commander on the active duty side or the reserve component side, mm-hmm. you've got a tremendous amount of authority uh, under your belt. A lot of which you'll never use, but in a sure. situation like this where you're in uncharted waters, it's good to have somebody that that has read the uh, the rules on the. Uh, you know, on the top of the box, so to speak, uh, to be able to help <laughs> yeah. you out and say, no, you, that's a, that's a tool in your toolkit. Go ahead and use it. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, fun fact, actually, one of the, uh, defense support civil authority manuals that's out there, I, uh, co-authored. Very nice. Yeah. I'm yeah. sure people are cracking that open and using that right about now, which is amazing <laughs> to think about. It it goes back, uh, it was probably t- maybe 11 years ago. I'm actually, my name actually isn't in it. My, my agency is listed in it as a supporting agency for it. But uh, yeah, yeah, I was, I was there. I was the, I was the civilian. <laughs> I was the sole <laughs> civilian who was uh, doing the writing in it on the emergency management side. So very nice. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, you know, we, obviously we, we, we want everyone to, to stay safe and be well, you, you know, don't, um, make sure that you're getting factual information. Um, there's a lot of rumor out there and conjecture and speculation and that kind of stuff, which can oftentimes lead to a lot of fear mongering. So, you know, make sure you have the facts and, uh, you know, also probably now, I mean, un- un- unless you're, you're someone like, you know, Tom or I or, or, or other people who can, uh, actually truly laugh at the differences. Now is not the time to be watching like outbreak or contagion. Uh, 
because those movies are going to, first of all, they're probably going to make you nuts. Uh, and the second thing is, I mean, again, looking at kind of the, the, the military aspect of, of what we do and how we cover things, by and large, their use of, of uh, and I'll just simply say military in the broadest sense of military forces in those movies has an awful lot of inaccuracy. Uh, and and <laughs> that is not where we are at now. Um, it, you know, it's we, we, we don't have soldiers with rifles patrolling the streets and, you know, ordering us indoors and, and, and that kind of stuff. And, you know, uh, uh, plastic sheeting our houses and, and, you know, that I, it's, we're, 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 that's, that's not the situation that we are operating under what we are operating under. And, and, you know, while Tom mentioned, there's been uh, some different executive orders from governors in terms of doing different things, please just, you know, pay attention to those. And, uh, by and large, I mean, just so long as you can, and, and we definitely appreciate the people who are out and working critical jobs, whether it's retail or a gas station or a toilet paper factory or any of that stuff that truly, truly is keeping society running right now. I mean, it's and in, in a lot of ways, the folks who are still working now have been in a, I think, an off ignored portion of the workforce uh kind of taken for granted and and now you know hopefully people are are getting getting a little bit more respect a, a lot more respect uh for for the folks who who are out there doing this because really they are keeping society running so thank you and and you know for the folks who are able to stay home stay home i mean unless you really have to go out for something just stay the hell home um that is what's going to curtail this thing and and minimize it so Go donate blood if you can. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's that, a big that, thing. That, that, that's that's a good reason to go out. Um, blood banks very recently have been putting out a lot of stuff that, with uh, people not venturing out, they have they're not getting the donations um, that they really need to keep up the blood supply. The the, the, the blood supply does expire; it, it has an expiration date on it. When you give blood, I don't remember off the top of my head what that is, but they do have to rotate stock. So if you gave, uh, you know, whatever they might have doesn't necessarily it doesn't last them very long obviously a portion of it gets used and then a portion of it has to be disposed of because you know just like food in your fridge it it does spoil so that's uh yeah that's what we're dealing with so all right let's let's get away from coronavirus and and talk about some real stuff here we're going to talk about star wars (laughs) the important stuff that's right that's right (laughs) In, in, in case folks haven't picked up over the last 18 episodes tom and i love 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 star wars and um so we're gonna do a we're not really going to do a review of the phantom menace like we do kind of in the style of a lot of our films because we do recognize that there's a lot of stuff in star wars that is not really war related um in terms of plot and story but there is a lot there are a lot of really great military elements to it um i think we mentioned in the last episode that this is actually how Tom and I got together because you were doing a panel at uh, Star Wars Celebration in Orlando a few years ago, uh, basically on this topic. Yours was was broad based; it was basically all Star mm-hmm. Wars. You didn't have it broken down into a, into a particular film, and making some comparisons between real life military, um, at, at least in terms of of U.S. military and the stuff that we see in Star Wars, so like basically analogs. Um, and then that's what got us talking because I was uh, I was really enamored with it. So I became a a 
Tom Harper fanboy. Um, I <laughs> might have stalked you a little bit, um, I think is probably an appropriate term. You like came up and shoved a Sharpie in my face and you wanted like to see what my <laughs> autograph looked like. And you told yeah. me, weirdly enough, you told me you wanted it on your forearm and you were not going to wash it. It was like this whole <laughs> big scene and, you know, here we are. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was only mildly awkward, but we, we got through it. We got through it. Now, now, now we're, we're good friends, right, Tom? Right, Tom? Uh, oh, Tom, totally. Buddy? Let me see your forearm. I want to yeah. see that promise all that. <laughs> So yeah, we are we're we're really going to hit like those uh, the particular military elements of these films that, in a lot of ways, we do have comparisons to real life, and it maybe real life presently, maybe real life historically, uh, but we're we're using those as a lot of, of touchstones and just kind of interesting points of discussion here. So, Star Wars: The Phantom Menace, uh, released in nineteen ninety nine. Written and directed by George Lucas, who is, um, uh, Tom actually has an altar behind him to George Lucas. He he prays to it daily. That's right. I, you kneel like Vader does to the Emperor. <laughs> five times a day is preferable, but, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, th- th- Tom, for for those who maybe haven't seen The Phantom Menace, what, what what's it all about? What What happens here? What's our plot? Well, in a word, ta- the, the the taxation of trade routes is central mm. here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, when uh, this movie centers around uh, a a growing dispute on the planet of Naboo, uh, wherein uh, a a company called the Trade Federation or a corporate entity has uh, moved in with violence. Uh, they they invade the planet, blockade the planet, shut off the planet's uh, uh, communications over a dispute in uh, the taxation of trade routes. And it really boils up into a larger conflict. Uh, the galaxy's central government gets involved uh, as the Republic is alarmed at this sort of uh, violent outburst, if you will, from a corporate entity. And they send a pair of Jedi... Qui-Gon Jinn and Obi-Wan Kenobi to try to mediate the dispute. That quickly goes awry, and the Jedi are find themselves on Naboo and drawn into a larger conflict uh, that, that threatens to engulf the entire galaxy. Uh, meanwhile, as the Jedi attempt to, to help uh, the people of Naboo and the Queen of Naboo, Queen Amidala, resolve this conflict, uh, they come across a young boy in their travel named Anakin Skywalker. And, uh, you know, we, we won't be discussing too much of Anakin's journey at, uh, in, with our focus, but uh, suffice it to say, this boy is special, uh, and uh, the Jedi believe him to be uh, the quote-unquote chosen one, uh, someone who is very strong with the Force and destined to bring balance to the Force between light and dark. And uh, as they continue their journey onward to Coruscant to ask for help from the uh, Republic government, they bring Anakin along with them to to take him before the Jedi Council. Ultimately, uh, the uh, people of Naboo and Qui-Gon Jinn and, and Obi-Wan realize that they're not going to get help from the Galactic Republic they have to take matters into their own hands, and so the Naboo people uh, join with uh, the native Gungans on Naboo 
take the fight to the Trade Federation and ultimately free their planet from uh, the grip of tyranny. Nice. Very well done. It's like you've seen the movie once or twice. Yeah, like maybe like three times. <clears throat> maybe yeah, yeah. Put a couple, different. put a couple zeros after that three, and you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you. So, a lot of people make fun of this movie. A lot of people dismiss it. This is actually my favorite of the prequels. I think it's a great movie. I think this is this movie to me is is kind of like the heart of Star Wars. Um, it is not my favorite movie of, of the entire. Um, the entire franchise, but this movie does have a lot of heart to it. And I love that, you know, we had the original trilogy and this brings us back to kind of the, 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 the roots of, of everything that transpired through the nine films, 11 films um, that, that we, that we've seen. So some notable cast members coming out of this, Uh, Liam Neeson, who plays Qui-Gon Jinn, uh, whose life was far too short. Ewan McGregor plays Obi-Wan Kenobi. Natalie Portman playing Queen Amidala and also Padme, same person. Uh, Jake Lloyd, who played young Anakin Skywalker. Ian McDiarmid, who plays uh, the illustrious uh, Senator Palpatine. Anthony Daniels and Kenny Baker playing C-3PO and R2-D2, respectively. Um, those guys are, are legendary throughout the, the entire saga. Uh, as well as Frank Oz, who voices Yoda. And uh, Sam Jackson my all-time favorite actor playing Mace Windu. So I, I will note at the outset, you can't see this uh, if you're listening to this, but Tim, I'll show you. I have a Yaddle action figure. Yaddle wow. being the other member of the Jedi Council that's of the same species as Yoda. Um, she's going to sit right here and, and monitor this entire chat to make sure it's all accurate and uh, you know worthy of, uh, of your listen. That's good. That's I, I have to say. I, I actually have uh, on my desk. Uh, I have a, um, a, a amongst some others. I do have a Qui Gon Lego and a Jar Jar Lego. Ooh, very so, nice. Yeah, yeah. They 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 hang out here with a, a a fairly mixed cast of characters. We have Admiral Thrawn, who's a completely different Star Wars character. I like that he's in front. Of yes. all the rest. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. Um, also, <laughs> Ghost Rider and Indiana Jones. That pretty much represents, like, my the core of my fandom. And that's the crossover event that I think we can all hope for. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to make a Ghost, uh, Ghost Rider movie, a reboot of it, but it's going to also involve Indiana Jones and Star Wars. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so, um, Tom, as, as you said, kind of right at the top of, of your plot summary... The, the the whole setup for this is really very much akin to what we saw that led up to the American Revolution. It, it was the taxation of trade routes, and this unfair taxation is what led to a lot of strain uh, in certain pockets of the galaxy. We had a, an interesting thing that we have here is we have a, a private entity who has an awful lot of government influence, and they also have their own army, whereas the 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 Republic, which is essentially the galactic government, um, the planets planets and even some systems collections of planets have their own governments. Um, but the they are members; most of them are members of the Republic, and the Republic actually doesn't have a standing army, which is a really interesting thing. Um, so, 
it 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 then causes uh, the, the the trade federation, which is this this private entity, to uh, to Im- impose an embargo on a planet who is not participating in um, basically in this whole taxation thing, and so they're they're trying to leverage some some military influence on them. So, Tom, do you want to talk to that a little bit? Yeah, what's fine the. The Phantom Menace, like, famously gets knocked for its opening crawl and this idea that there's uh, this focus on taxation of trade routes. I mean, you like, you look at other Star Wars opening crawls, and it's, you know, galactic. It, it's a time of civil war, uh, you, you know, much more bombastic. <clears throat> and so people sort of turn their nose up to it. But when you think about it, like, this is... When, when it comes to money and uh, representation and, and, and really bending folks over a barrel uh, as, as a company, you know, companies or governments, you know, dip out of their pockets. Um, that's a real historical powder keg for, uh, for war. You mentioned the American revolution. I mean, that entire war, we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't have, uh, I don't know if we would never have broken off from Britain, but the the entire catalyst for that war was Britain's escalating uh, unfair taxation of the colonies. Yeah, right. It, it it drove things to a head, and you lit off an entire war. And and you know you you might have never had characters that would have lived the roles that they did, like General Washington and and John Adams and folks like that had this. Uh, not originated with something as seemingly mundane as taxes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I, when I look at this, I'm like, this is, it's an era of peace, right? There hasn't been war in thousands of years, uh, not widespread galactic war. Um, money is obviously the thing that's going to start, start this up. And the revolution is far from the only conflict that's been driven by taxes or by money. I, I think probably, you know, somewhere close to a majority of, of uh, major conflicts uh, throughout history in the real world have been started in some way based on that. You know, another example that just kind of jumps to mind is the American Civil War and, and the issue mm-hmm. of slavery and what that meant to the southern states mm-hmm. and their economies and whatnot and, and uh, the lengths they were willing to go to uh, to try to defend that awful practice. And so it, it's... Uh, t- to me, it, it's the perfect setup for this. What's unusual here is is the Trade Federation, right? They're, they're this, this isn't the Galactic Republic bending uh, Naboo over a barrel. In fact, the, the sort of one of the central characters to all of this, Palpatine, is the senator for Naboo. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a government, or excuse me, a non-government organization, uh, and, and the Trade Federation is a sort of a conglomerate that's just wildly powerful. I mean, think like if, you know, Google, uh, joined one of the largest shipping companies in the world and, and they, uh, also had, uh, the, the, you know, power, financial power of like Apple and Amazon. This is like a massive, massive (laughs) galactic company to the point where they, we don't see it in this movie, but in subsequent, uh, Star Wars movies, they are powerful and influential enough to have their own representative in the Senate. Yeah, in the Galactic Senate. I mean, that's like if Jeff Bezos had a seat in the United States Senate, not as a senator <laughs> from like you know Washington State or DC or, right. or Maryland or something like that. Just but Amazon. Just Amazon. Yeah, Amazon objects to this motion. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And 
it, so that's kind of wild. And and clearly they are very very well financed. Um, the Nemoidians that that run the Trade Federation, um, Newt Gunray and the like, have enough finances that they have a fleet. So you see uh, that that command ship there at the start of things, and and all the ships that they have blockading the planet. I mean that's no small feat. They have an entire droid army. So this is a, a you know something that's that's really unlike anything we see. I mean, you know, I suppose if Amazon wanted to spend a fraction of its money, they could have their own army if they wanted to. <laughs> they just buy Tesla and like make autonomous battle droids like the the Trade Federation. But it's really a unique setup, and um, you know the 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 fix that the Galactic Republic finds themselves in is that. This is an alarming escalation. This seems to to be something that that has not happened uh, previously. There's no real precedent for this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It's on a you know a relatively important planet with a relatively influential senator, um, and you know a, a planet that's also relatively peaceful. Nabu the Nabu people don't have their own standing army, so this isn't like some simmering dispute militarily between these two organizations. This is innocent folks getting, uh, you know, the boot heel put down on them. Yeah. So yeah, it's, I, I find it, I, I, it's like one of my favorite setups for, for any of the movies. Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, there's, there's actually a lot of politics, uh, behind star Wars and, um, and, and everything that goes on. I mean, when we get into, as the story progresses, it gets it becomes very personal um, in terms of Anakin and then Luke and then uh, and then even in in the sequels with with Ray. Uh, but there's a much bigger picture that's that's at play, and that is the politics and and, and the larger war that's out there. Uh, certainly, a big part of this is the Jedi, and the Jedi are this very interesting thing that we don't we don't have a direct analog to in in terms of their role that we see in star wars to to real life but we do have some comparisons some people might not like the comparisons i make um and and this is when you have a when you have people who are kind of within a government structure and, and largely they are, we can really, we can call the Jedi a religion or a philosophy, if you will. And, and so they are kind of this quasi military force. They are pretty autonomous. They don't really report to, to the Republic, like to the chancellor or, or, or to the Senate. But they kind of do, you know, when the chancellor says, hey, you know, we we want some help with some negotiation or peacekeeping in this certain thing. Um, You know, we want the Jedi to to, to go out there and do this. And the Jedi do it. Um, I I think that they could say no, because it doesn't seem that they actually... Fully, I mean, they, they they are not part of the government. They're not represented in the Senate. They just 
they have a very, very unique role. I mean, they are the, quote, peacekeepers of the Republic, which is a very interesting thing, which which then does kind of put them at the sway of of politicians. It's kind of the assumption that, well, the Republic is always going to do the right thing, and the Jedi want to always do the right thing. So if they're assuming that the interests are, are aligned between the Republic and, and, and the Jedi, and... Um, we, we obviously see as the story goes on that they, they, nece- they don't necessarily do that because one, the Senate is hugely bureaucratic. Um, and the Senate in, in Star Wars has a couple thousand representatives at least, right, Tom? I, yeah. You could, you yeah. Probably, uh, Tom also is a like trivia treasure trove when it comes to star Wars. I mean, I could throw anything out there and he will give me the exact answer. It's amazing. And, and, and then also it depends on who the chancellor is because the, the chancellor is oftentimes the one who, who is directly speaking with, uh, with the Jedi and with the Jedi council and making these, these requests. They're kind of somewhere between the between a request and an order which again makes things a little ubiquitous in terms of exactly where there is or isn't any authority. Um, and so they are, you know, the Jedi are, are then sent out to, to do the will of the Republic. And, and in this case where we first see them is as negotiators in this whole thing between the government of Naboo and, uh, and the trade Federation, the trade Federation decides uh that they are just going to kill the jedi which is a big no-no like you don't do that it's it's not only a these are quasi representatives of the republic but uh there's a stigma related to killing the jedi almost similar to like you would have a curse put upon you type of thing like that kind of seems to be like the way that they talk about like oh you you one you can't do it because you can't like it's really really difficult to kill a jedi and two holy crap if you do like you know your life is forfeit they will haunt your ass i mean that's that's not exactly what's said but it's almost kind of yaddle will come after you With her flowing locks. Yeah. <laughs> well, for those that were wondering, there are um, precisely 1,024 pods within the Senate. So those little mm. floating pods. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there are more senators than that, I think. But um, I don't know if they've ever nailed down the exact number. But yeah. So if you're if you're looking at the Galactic Senate and trying to count, don't worry. It's 1,024. <laughs> No, but you're right. The the Jedi, and we'll when we do some of the other <clears throat> prequel movies, we'll get into this. But one of the fascinating aspects, probably the most fascinating aspect of the Jedi to me, is this weird dual role that they play. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you talk about the the interplay between them and the Galactic Senate and the Chancellor in particular, and Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith really tackle this more head on. But there's this sort of arm's length relationship between the two. The Jedi, I think, as a organization are happy to assist and they've played this historical role assisting the Republic in doing good things for them. And and I, I don't know that it's ever been fully explained or explored, but perhaps it's, uh, you know, a trade-off for the larger good. They don't want to see the, the galaxy at 
in a constant state of war, if if the cost of the republic not having a standing army and going out and getting into brawls uh, at at every corner, if the trade off for that is that they have to go out and and sort of willingly be the peacekeepers for the galaxy, that may have been something that historically was decided just was a fair trade off. And, sure. And, um, I think you're right that historically the, the requests that have come from the chancellor or the, the Senate in general have been things that aligned with what the Jedi uh, ideals were. You know, these these ideas, you know, helping those in need, uh, resolving disputes, preventing larger wars. Mm-hmm. And even though that that technically served the Senate and the chancellor, uh, by extension, they were measures for the larger good for the greater good and i think that's why it it, it's odd because the opening crawl here says this the the chancellor chancellor valorum dispatched secretly dispatched to jedi so Mm -hmm. it almost makes it sound like he has control yeah but it's very clear from the rest of the movies that there's a real discomfort when the chancellor particularly palpatine wants to exercise greater control and jurisdiction and if you go to the clone wars tv show you you regularly see the autonomy that the Jedi have. I mean, they live in their own little uh, temple. Uh, you don't you don't see normal uh, Republic citizens and politicians filtering in and out of the Jedi Temple, and certainly the the Jedi Council chambers are it's it's a real sacred place mm-hmm. that and, outsiders and some, are. Not- and there's some interesting perspective of the, uh, the 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 people, the commoners, if you will. On the Jedi, some revere them and some, in a lot of cases, kind of vilify them. I mean, they're because they're like, well, they're just this entity that's there and they pretty much do whatever they want, like no questions asked. They're they're not held accountable to anything. And it, it, you know, we have, at least here in the U.S., we have this separation of church and state, which we also know when we take a practical look at it kind of doesn't exist i mean we we like to say that it that it exists and i think we really kind of toe the constitutional line on it because sometimes it it sometimes it doesn't so sometimes there there isn't so much of a separation um and and and, and not to to make things religious but i mean we we have you know swearing in ceremonies and 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 that kind of stuff that involve religious instruments the the bible and invoking god and and that kind of thing so it's a it's a very it's a very interesting relationship that we have uh between religion and government and then we even have certain entities around the world where religion and government are are practically one and the same you look at uh nations like iran you know their their government is based in in their religion and and so you know it's 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 a very interesting thing and it becomes then that the the government is run at the will of 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 religious figures and and they kind of intertwine that and so then they're you know part of it ends up being i think in a lot of ways we see it as kind of this this uh religiously dictated morality which is then imposed on people by using government as an instrument instead of government actually governing. Uh, yeah, there's, there's, gosh, it's like a huge rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, no, we could do an entire podcast on that. I think from a military standpoint, it it's clear that the Jedi Order 
is not they're not the only force users in the galaxy mm-hmm. so they don't and they don't have a monopoly on you know their interpretation of of how the force should be used there are um there are other folks that are force attuned or force users out in the galaxy that really disagree with their approach to things and i i by approach i mean this business of getting involved and and going beyond just the study and um sort of prayerful connection if you will to to the force uh into this you know use of the force as a a way to to um assist in combat or whatever and the example that jumps to mind is in the clone wars uh toward uh the end of the series uh there's a these creatures that look kind of like jar jar the degoyan masters mm-hmm. and uh they historically had a split with the jedi over the jedi's uh use of children in their order that you know that the, they just vehemently disagreed with the idea that the jedi would go out and bring children uh away from their parents and into the order and while they didn't get into the business of of you know the jedi's role in combat and that sort of thing um you know i think it's safe to say that there are folks out in the galaxy that can use the force that do not look at what the jedi are doing as as the right thing mm-hmm. um and it's it's just a fascinating aspect because they they have this special set of powers it's it, it's almost like if the mormon church or the catholic church had like a special forces unit that was attached, like a military yeah. unit of like really highly skilled operators. Mm-hmm. And, you know, on occasion, like the state of New York was just like, hey, Archbishop, could you <laughs> send your guys in to yeah. uh, do this hostage negotiation? Yeah. And then, you know, they like come in, they're like wearing crosses on their helmets and stuff. And, <laughs> Yeah, you know it's 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 just a r- really weird concept, and and I think the Jedi, and this is a, a topic for another podcast, but like they become a victim of that. Yes. ultimately yes. this uh, th- their embrace of that that sort of combat role and uh, the evolution of the peacekeeper role into something more is um, you know something that really gets them in trouble long term, mm-hmm. and you see it in this movie with the the evolving role of you know Qui-Gon wants to resist um going down that pathway as much as possible whereas Obi-Wan is like ready to go like let's let's take the fight to him yeah um so in any event that's that that's sort of a, a central thread that really blows up in Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith yeah um and I I think that yeah, I, I think that a lot of people have some different opinions and perspectives on this. Um, clearly, your daughter does. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's the curse of the the more powerful mic. <laughs> that's quite all right. Um, so there, there is a a a real life analog that that you had uh, brought into the the show notes here, Tom, and that is with this uh, the attempted assassination of 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 the Jedi. Um, there, there's some similarities. I mean, there's definitely some differences also, but we have some similarities, uh, with the, uh, the killing of, uh, General Soleimani from, from the Iranian army when he was in, uh, when, when he was in Iraq and, uh, there was a, a, an allied effort, uh, through use of drones to, uh, to, to attack him. And, uh, I believe their Reaper drone was, was deployed and, and, and took him out. And so then, we've seen some skirmishes in Iraq 
basically because of this with some faction groups in Iraq who are uh, apparently funded and supported by the Iranian government to, uh, you know, basically stir some things up uh, within Iraq. And we've seen some retaliation with, uh, you know, some mortaring of U.S. bases, rocket attacks on U.S. bases, and um, and that kind of thing, which has then also now caused some consternation between the U.S. and Iraq, you know, who is uh, our host. Uh, we are not an occupying army in Iraq. But the Iraqi government uh, is not very pleased with some of the stuff that 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 we have done uh, in in that regard, kind of acting fairly autonomously uh, and and without consulting the Iraqi government. So it, it's we, we we see a lot of this stuff. Um, you know, it's an interesting thing that we see play out in in real life, where you have some of these uneasy and strained alliances. And we certainly see these types of things in, in film as well. Um, and, and, you know, they're brought up quite a bit in, in, uh, in a lot of war movies. So I don't know if there's yeah, anything I, else you want to speak to with that. No, I think the, what stands out here is it's the, an assassin, an assassination is usually an act of war. I mean, part of the, the big deal behind Suleimani's killing is that, it was undoubtedly an assassination mm-hmm. uh, by definition under international law, and that is ordinarily an act of war. I mean, this is uh, a, a in, in that instance, it's a uh, an officer of a sovereign military, and you've got a military attacking another sovereign military. I mean, it meets the technical definition, mm-hmm. and you know, glad that cooler heads kind of prevailed on that. Uh, you know, we've seen. Um, you know, skirmishes and certainly folks have been injured and killed, uh, arguably as a result of that on both sides. But in any event, in the Star Wars realm, in, in Phantom Menace, the Jedi are attacked right out of the gate. And I, I think you, I see all of this through the lens of Palpatine because he's, or, or Sidious, uh, I should say, because he's orchestrating this entire plot. His ultimate goal is to, to use this Trade Federation blockade as a way to draw the Republic into a war. But in a way, as an extension of that, he knows that the Jedi here are an extension of the Republic. Mm-hmm. They're Republic emissaries. They may be you know, part of the Jedi Order, but they're on Republic business yeah. here. And killing the Jedi, in addition to uh, you know this invasion that's going on, would really be the icing on the cake to start the war that Palpatine wants to, to so that he can catapult himself into power, mm-hmm. uh, or at least at this stage, cause enough chaos to, to set Valorum up uh, to, to be voted out of power mm-hmm. because he knows he'll sort of have a, uh, a Neville Chamberlain oh, war two totally. style totally. Uh, response to it and, and get locked up. Uh, <clears throat> so in it, in any event, you you made the point earlier, Tim, about this um, this reverence for the Jedi and this this attitude toward uh, killing a Jedi and how controversial that is. Palpatine knew that, mm-hmm. and I think he he knew absolutely. Like it it comes across in the movie as like these guys are an inconvenience. Get rid of them. Uh, go away. But he knew full well that Qui Gon, who uh, before that point had been offered a spot on the Jedi Council and ultimately turned it down to stay as um, Obi-Wan's master, 
he knew that these were this was a pair of high profile Jedi, maybe Obi-Wan a little bit less. So killing them would make waves. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I don't know that the Jedi are going to get drawn into a war, but certainly it it set the conditions to to do exactly what Palpatine needed it to do. Well, and and, and you, you have in this situation, one person who is pitting both sides against each other. I mean, he's, he's the perfect puppet master. And then he also gets to play victim because he is, the senator from Naboo. So he gets to say, oh my gosh, you know, my my people are suffering because of this. And he basically gets uh, Queen Amidala as as his proxy because he knows that she will draw a lot of, of sympathy. And it, it, it's just amazing how, I mean, he's moving every freaking piece on the chessboard. He's, he's, he, he's, he's, he has both, he has control of both sides in this. And, and it's, it's pretty incredible. Uh, yeah. So it, as as we get into this, we see some different tactics um, and strategies th- that are used militarily. Uh, early on, we we see the Trade Federation doing a jamming of communications uh, coming in and out of Naboo, and so this is this is something that we do fairly regularly, uh, regularly in 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 terms of of conflict and. You know, there, there, there is a technology, uh, behind it. I mean, you, you, you can't just, uh, you know, be like in space balls and press the button and put, you know, uh, was it strawberry <laughs> jam on, on someone's communications board. So, I mean, it can come everything from basically just throwing static on uh, across channels that, you know, that your, uh, enemy is using to actually using some kind of uh, various electromagnetic uh, impulses locally that will uh, take out a certain part of their communication spectrum based on whatever it is that they're they're using, be it cell phone or uh, radio or something like that. So we, we, there's a lot of analogous stuff to, to what we do in real life in terms of jamming of communications. And they, yeah, that's very true. And and they use it for a specific strategic purpose here because that's what, you know, jamming can be used offensively or defensively. I mean, you see electronics jamming all the time with, uh, to, to try to uh, enforce in, in protection measures. Mm-hmm. So say uh, you, you've got a, a military base in Iraq, uh, you know, I can virtually guarantee you that they're going to have some jamming capability both to disrupt and the enemy from communicating between each other uh, in an effort to coordinate an attack or more modernly uh, disrupt electronic transmissions that might control, say, a bomb. Mm-hmm. So if a car is driving up and you have, you have a remote operator of a, a bomb that would be targeting the gate, sure. that sort of thing. Here it's it's used for an offensive strategic purpose because the Trade Federation, as Sayo Bibble, uh, the, the governor of Feed, so aptly puts it, it can only mean one thing, invasion. Mm-hmm. It's a precursor. They're using it to to, uh, to to wipe out Naboo communications so that they can't call out for assistance from the larger galaxy. Because I, there, there's a, that's sort of a central tenet when you get back to the politics of it. The Trade Federation controls communications um, on that planet. The truth about what's happening there, the fact that that battle droids have landed, uh, Naboo uh, 
people, uh, the, the people of Naboo are being put into camps, that these awful atrocities are being committed. That's not getting out because the Naboo people can't communicate. The only folk, and, and that's why they make such a big effort to destroy Queen Amidala's ship as it mm-hmm. leaves because the, the truth can't get out. And and you see that when the when Queen Amidala goes and makes the plea to the Senate about what's happening to her people, there there's a suggestion that a commission be sent to to really investigate hmm. because nobody really yeah. knows. And, and and that becomes <laughs> so the bureaucracy it's, it's, of the whole thing, and it's uh, yeah. exactly exactly she's there saying, "Hey, my people are dying," and and they want to put together. A group of senators to go and and kind of inspect and take some notes. Yes, yeah. and and it's <laughs> on and our analog there, and for better or worse, um, is is oftentimes like the UN. You know, you you have something that's going on, and you have then a representative of a nation of a nation who goes to the UN and says, "Hey, look, we have this terrible thing that's happening in our country. We we need some help," and. The UN will say, well, okay, first we need to figure out the facts. And and that's legit. You need to know what's going on before you're going to just automatically take sides and, and, and deploy resources. So the UN will send observers. And those observers go around and they've got their flak jackets and their white helmets with the blue UN on it. And they walk around and they see what's going on. And inevitably, a few of them end up getting killed because they get caught in the middle of the conflict. And then someone says, finally, eventually, after like months... Uh, yeah, there's bad stuff going on. And so then they talk about, it goes to committee and they talk about it in committee. Uh, there's so much of a, um, commentary. Uh, there's, there's not only like this analogous relationship between what we see in Star Wars in real life, but there's, there's also a lot of commentary that George Lucas has, has had through so many of, of, of his movies, um, in this franchise, to kind of call out some of these things that we see in real life. And I don't know if this whole, like the, the UN thing to me jumps out quite a bit. I don't know if that was a unintentional, uh, uh, reference on, on his part, but like everything that happens, it's uh, the, the galactic Senate basically becomes the, 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 the UN analog in this is very much how the UN operates that that's like 100% how, how they operate. So if you want help from the UN, don't count on it for months. It's probably not going to happen right away. Um, and part of that is is realistic necessity, and part of it is just kind of a, a huge bureaucracy. And then even before they do take action, the Security Council has to vote to approve it. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a very interesting, uh, very interesting comparison that we see there. Yeah. When, and... And the odd thing is that that eventually you get the Trade Federation effectively with a seat on, on that council and able to to veto and and uh, speak out against actions. The interesting thing here is that they also have <clears throat> not even a military; they have a a financial interest in controlling the flow of information because what they've done here is really unprecedented. And it would threaten their ability to do business in the larger galaxy. Certainly, the the Galactic Republic could take action to to strip them of uh, their ability to do business. And uh, you see a little bit of that toward the end of the movie when uh, Newt Gunray is arrested and whatnot. Um, but they they want this. They they took this action uh, in part because as, as a way of protesting. Uh, they don't do a good job of, of explaining it in the crawl, but effectively 
these free trade zones exist around the galaxy. And it, think of it like a place where the Trade Federation can do business and not be taxed. Uh, so it's like, you know, the state of Delaware with no no sales tax or no. Does Delaware have no sales tax, or is it? Am I thinking of uh, New Hampshire? In any has no sales tax. I know that. Think of it like New Hampshire. <laughs> you know, no sales tax. The Trade Federation can just do business there, and and not pay anything yeah. on it. Um, you know, immediately before this movie, a law passes uh, by the Galactic Senate, and now they can be taxed in those free trade zones, and that's what sparks them to to take this action against. Uh, Naboo with the backing of uh, Darth mm-hmm. Sidious. And so while they want the financial result that they uh, they started all this for, they also don't want to be crushed by the Republic in a political sense and, and be forced out of business effectively. And so it's, it's a real gamble for them to, to send you know, these forces that are normally used to, to collect debts and whatnot. Because it's one of the interesting things to me, and we talked about this at the beginning, this company has a big army. They're not the only company uh, that, that does this. The uh, there, there are several other folks that eventually join uh, the separatist movement, um, whether it's the banking clan or um, the techno union that use droid forces or other forces to, to assist them, for lack yes. of a better term, in collecting what's owed to them. And... While that appears to be an okay use of, of uh, quasi-military forces, this is yeah. not. Uh, and, and so it's, uh, it's a huge thing. It's also interesting because prior to this point in Star Wars uh, film history, we didn't really see droids in combat. And one of the unique things that I really love about this movie is it, um, it introduces something that's a... a you know, been a growing thing in, in the real world military through the use of drones and other automated weapon systems into Star Wars. And that becomes sort of a central centerpiece of the Clone mm-hmm. Wars going forward. Um, and, I, you know, <clears throat> autonomous weapons in the real world have existed for years before drones became a thing. I mean, drones are just sort of the latest iteration and, um, you know, they, they, you know, while we don't have robots, uh, walking around, we have, uh, you know, the army's Patriot missile system that's been around for decades mm-hmm. has some level of autonomy. Um, the Navy has a, a sea whiz, uh, gun system. So it's a close in weapon system that defends ships. It's like a, a giant, uh, six barreled 20 millimeter, uh, cannon that sits on the ship and it's got a dome that looks like a almost like a grain silo on top of it uh, that's got a ra- uh, a pair of uh, radars yep. built into it a search and a tracking mm-hmm. radar and then it's connected to a big drum of ammunition there's not a person sitting there with a joystick operating the gun it's it's automated but it's sort of the like the you know a basic building block toward uh, much more advanced yeah. systems and you know, certainly the military sort of is in a, a constant state of development with things like this. So, you know, today's Predator and Reaper is tomorrow's uh, B-1 battle droid, so to speak. Yeah. In a um, lot of cases, it really is. And and that's probably one of the, you know, aside from talking about the role of, of the Jedi as this kind of religious institution in, in 
government and in war and enforcement and that kind of thing. I think the other really big part of this discussion here coming out of this movie uh, on the military side is this use of, of, of drones, um, of droids. And so, yeah, we, we have that comparison here. Um, we, we have some AI types of, of things that we are putting out there, but for the most part, the stuff that we use um, in, in military applications and, and even some other similar applications um, are, you know, do tend to be drones and, and robots that are human controlled. Um, and it's a, it's, it's a real interesting thing. Um, it, it, you, you mentioned both the predator and the reaper. Those are probably the two most well-known drones that are used by, uh, by the U S military, both starting out of the air force and then when the predators uh basically basically when technology advanced and the air force said okay we're just we're going to uh upgrade to reapers the predators were then donated to the army uh, <laughs> true story uh, <laughs> they're like we don't want these anymore you you guys want them here just we dusted them off they're, they're, there's only a couple scratches on them uh so they basically become airborne artillery for for, for the army uh <laughs> and and i I'll, I'll tell you i have had a chance i mean i've 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 touched a reaper drone um i got a heck of an education on them uh last summer we have a there's a base near me which is one of i think two or three um, primary control bases, Air Force control bases for Reapers. Oh, and this is around the world. So missions that are wow. flown in Afghanistan, Iraq, wherever, are controlled out of upstate New York. There are, there are local pilots that deal with takeoff and landing um, of these drones uh, in that operations area. And then essentially as soon as is, is, as soon as they reach a certain altitude after takeoff, control is then switched over to a team of pilots. Uh, well, a, a, a pilot and and a uh, an NCO who then takes care of the cameras and, and other systems over here in upstate New York. And, and it's essentially they're they're in a room um, just to kind of give a setting for folks. They're they're in a room, not a very big room. And quite literally, I mean, the, these are actual pilots. These folks are, are trained to, to fly actual planes that they would sit in. Um, and so the, the, uh, the drones are, their control of the drones is, is formatted in exactly the same way. And so they have uh, their, their cockpit, if you will, their, their, thing that they're working within is laid out exactly like a cockpit. The controls are just like a cockpit. The only exception is that one, they're not looking out of, uh, they're not looking out of a cockpit. They're looking at an array of screens around them. So they have like a one camera that is static looking ahead of them. They have other cameras that can be moved and angled around either looking at the ground or looking to the sides or above or wherever. So they have an array of screens. Um, but then they also have computers they have computer controls that, you know, they've got a, it's a, uh, you know, they have a PC sitting in front of them 
running off an old version of Windows, but we're not going to get into that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so, I mean, there are a variety of, of other controls that they are doing because this is not only being remote piloted, but because of the technology that's involved in it. And also the fact that they have to have incredible redundancy of systems. Because if if something breaks, something else needs to be able to uh, fail over. And um, they need, to, I mean, there's actually like, there are techs that work in the same building that if something goes wrong with one of these drones in the midst of flying it, they can actually, uh, typically the, the pilot will still stay. They'll boot the NCO out. The tech will sit in the NCO's chair. They can move... Um, certain controls over between the different seats. And so the tech will get in there and they can actually go into coding of this thing and they can have switches turn on and off. They can do all, all sorts. It's like amazing, amazing tech, absolutely mind blowing tech. So I got to see these guys flying, um, some domestic, uh, uh, training missions and just really, really cool stuff. Amazing capability that comes off of these platforms. So there has been, ever since drones and, and, and various other robots have been introduced into the battle zone, there has been a lot of philosophical debate over this that, okay, we're now having machines do the work of people, and that kind of eliminates the stakes of war, um, where, you know, war was always a human force versus a human force, and sure, we may have been augmented by things, you know, the weapons or vehicles or whatever that we're in, but it was always people killing people. And to now have this other thing where it's so detached, it, it kind of, it changes some of the philosophy of war because we, we can, we can't, we cannot fight a war remotely. We can do, certain missions remotely, but we can't fly a war remotely. We still have to have infantry in the field. We still have to have folks locally there, but there's, uh, yeah, there's just, there, there, there's, there's, again, this is another very deep thing. There's a lot to it. I, I, Tom, what are, what are your thoughts? Well, I think in, you, you see that play out in the Star Wars universe here. You, you have atrocities being committed by these battle droids, you know, the internment of innocent people and, and uh, if Psyobibble is to be believed, uh, the, the potentially mass killing of Naboo citizens, and it's all being done by remote, yep. <laughs> effectively, you know, by the, the Trade Federation. And they seem to be perfectly fine with that moral distancing from the real, um, you know, significant portions that they would otherwise have to see and, and hear uh, with their own eyes and ears. And it makes it not only very easy to, to justify going to war at that point, because you're, you know, what cost are you paying other than the, the dollar figure for the machine, but you don't have to personally experience the, uh, that sort of moral yeah. toll that comes with it. And that becomes a larger issue, I, you know, I, arguably as as the Clone Wars break out, the Republic gets into that situation as well, just in a different mm -hmm. sense with the, the clone army. You know, they're effectively using them uh, as a droid army uh, would be used, yep. except these are real people mm -hmm. <laughs> that are being sent into battle. And, you know, it's... I, I like the juxtaposition a lot 
in in this movie because you have this soulless, heartless enemy uh, on the one side, and then you have both the Gungans and the Naboo people led, you know, respectively by Queen Amidala and Boss Nass that, uh, you know, really engender a sense of uh, camaraderie and, and sort of the, the, uh, the best qualities that you would want. And, and they're rallying together to try to, to save their people and their planet against this sort of faceless enemy, so to speak. Um, and you see it like when I, I think the battle itself, the battle of Naboo plays out very emotionally like that. I mean, you've got, uh, just droids yep. as far as the eye can see, they kind of roll up over mm-hmm. the, the hill there, uh, and, and deploy the forces. I love oh, that yeah, like, the yeah. music goes silent as, as the multi-troop transports just unload, mm-hmm. uh, all the battle droids. You can hear a few birds kind of yeah. like squawking in the background. And the Gungan army is all like just taking a, a giant gulp. You know, they start up their shield generators and it's like, it's well, ouch time. What is yeah. <laughs> ouch time? It's ouch time. Yep. You know, they, that's the whole juxtaposition right there. And, and, uh, I just, the, the, the scene that really gets me is, um, the battle droids cease firing on the shield generator and start to march on the Gungan army. And it's this like scene right out of the civil war or American revolution where it's this like massive shoulder force shoulder. on force battle where the battle droids are marching in line and yep. they kind of go through the shield generator or the shield wall and start to open fire. And you know, that's it to your point that the redundancy is a fascinating, uh, point with the no, droid army because no. they don't have it here <laughs> at the battle yeah. and that's something that's a lesson that they they learn because by the time attack of the clones rolls around they've advanced their their battle droid models but they're all centrally controlled from a single control ship in orbit and if that control ship goes down as it does the whole droid army goes down there's no redundancy there's no switch over there's no autonomy amongst the the individual droids mm-hmm. themselves to be able to take over, uh, and that becomes the target of the um, uh, uh, Bravo Squadron, the mm-hmm. uh, Naboo Royal Starfighter uh, Corps, as they they take flight. You know, they're not going to defeat all the battle droid, uh, the the vulture droids, and and all those things, but but they can attack that central target yeah, and, to and take so, out the force. You know, that certainly brings us to. Um, you know, analogous things here that we know, and we've talked about this in, in previous episodes covering different movies, that, uh, you know, taking out officers or taking out a command and control cell, that kind of thing, those are particular strategies that work exceptionally well because it, it, it you know, when you're dealing with, with people, uh, it, it throws a lot of things in, in, into disarray. Not only the actual command of the forces that are out there, but that will further disrupt communications issues. It uh, impacts supply line issues and other support issues. So there's a lot of stuff that, that happens from that. Um, And, you know, even the, the droid army did have a, a chain of command, but still ultimately that was all tied back to the control ship. I mean, they had uh, um, three OOM dash three, who who was their uh, battlefield commander, but that battlefield commander was still getting orders relayed from the droid control ship, and then 
it, it's there's a, a, a something in this that they don't necessarily go into because the droid control ship still controls all the droids, yet they still had a battlefield commander that they relayed orders to, and that commander seemed to have some kind of local control over the droids that were there. But then once the uh, droid control ship was taken out, all those droids deactivated. So, you know, there there is an interesting thing there. And, and you know, I mean, hey, there's certainly some concern that, uh, like I mentioned, the the Air Force base near me, and it's it's not a secret, it's, it's pretty well uh, out there that, hey, this is a location where Reaper drones are controlled from. They're a potential target because if they're taken out, like I said, there's one or two other sites uh, domestically that have the same capability, but that still that, that, so, you know, there's, there's, there's also concern about that because you are kind of putting truly all your eggs in one basket when it comes to that, if, if you don't have any kind of a failover. Yeah. And I love the, uh, the, the, you, you get this, uh, sort of dual synergy that the Gungans were used to draw the, the battle droid army out. The Naboo people didn't have their own standing army, sort of like the Republic. They did have something that the Neb- or that the Gungans didn't have, and that was uh, like a small number of starfighters. And, you know, it was a great strategy that was really put together on the fly between Amidala and, and um, Boss Nast to... to uh, figure out a way to get the bulk of droid forces to, to uh, coalesce and then get out of the cities because, you know, otherwise those fighters have no chance of taking off and, and making any kind of attack um, on the droid control ship. And they very nearly lose. I mean, the, the entire gamble mm-hmm. almost fails. The Bravo squadron is getting wiped out uh, in orbit. And were it not for Anakin Skywalker sort of, inadvertently flying into the 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 core of the ship there into the uh the hangar bay who knows what would have happened the gungan shield generator is destroyed and they're in full retreat mode as you know anakin lands and so think you know they they buy themselves some time effectively but it very this is a good example of the challenges of a force on force battle if if you're not um aligned right if you don't have the same amount of uh strength as your opponent so that uh the gungan army in a toe-to-toe fight probably wouldn't have lasted very long they buy themselves some extra time with those shield generators once those go down you know the the droids have the distinct advantage and to anyone that that really knocks the droids as a design or whatever i mean you know let's be honest these these things are built to mass fire they're not built to uh, you know, they've got other droid models eventually that are that are built to be deadly as individuals uh the, the whole point of these is to, yeah yeah the the uh even the the super battle droids are uh something a little bit different but this is meant to mass fire and they're able to take massive amounts of attrition and still overwhelm an, an enemy and and it goes back to your point right the autonomous nature of these things it's just a dollar figure to the trade federation they don't care if they lose a thousand battle droids they don't care if they lose ten thousand battle droids other than it costs them a little bit more money uh you know as long as their factories are running and producing these uh these forces 
they can continue with this strategy and and so it's it's really um I, I think from a filmmaking perspective, there was a desire probably on some level to not have lots of people dying on screen in a, in a movie where kids are going to be watching. But militarily, it makes sense for a company like this, for the Trade Federation to use a droid army. They're not, what are they going to do? They're going to go conscript soldiers on a planet? Or are you going to go enlist to fight for the Trade Federation? Like they may, might be able to hire like a decent sized mercenary army, but nothing like this, nothing on the order of being able to mount an invasion yeah. of a planet like Naboo. So really the battle droid army is the only option for them. So... Um, but ultimately they get down because of a lack of redundancy. So really it's a, it's a lesson in <laughs> making sure you've got backups on backups on backups. Yeah. So we, we did have for, uh, a, a period of time in this movie, we, we did have a different setting that was not on Naboo. Um, we, we saw our heroes go mm -hmm. to Tatooine. Well, kind of, they were forced into they they uh, their ship was damaged. They needed a a part for their ship, and then uh, antics ensued. There were things like pod racing and uh, uh, all sorts of things. Uh, but the the thing I think here that's worth focusing on is this: there was fundamentally a criminal organization which became the de facto government of Tatooine. Mm -hmm. And this was an organization that was run by the Huts, um, who we, you know we we saw kind of more famously represented uh, as Jabba the Hutt up in uh, in Empire Strikes Back. So they kind of did a rewind here and and showed some slightly different things and 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 gave uh, gave Jabba a a, a co ruler uh, who was also a mate, and um, so you know we 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 have another interesting thing here. And it's the the parallel that that I saw certainly to, to present day. Obviously, George Lucas didn't have this particular connection. Uh, was with ISIS. We know that in a lot of areas that ISIS occupies, um, ISIS actually it, it, it's just it's so interesting. It's kind of mind wracking. Um, ISIS understands and actually respects the role of governing to the extent that they actually make license plates. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, they are, they are registering vehicles within their occupied territory. Uh, ISIS is not a, just an, an entity that sure they have their own organization, but they go in and they, control people by power isis is actually offering I, I obviously i'm not shilling here for isis but their strategy here is to offer an alternative to the people within their territory to actually be governed but under the the philosophy uh which again is is religiously derived that they that they live by it's it's incredibly interesting. I mean, they, they truly set up government agencies. They, they, they tax that thing blew my <laughs> mind. They tax people. Um, it's, it's so strange. And we kind of see that here happening on Tatooine that, yeah, that the huts are the government. They control the government. They are, uh, they not only have executive control, they, 
it's mentioned in here that they are essentially the judicial system. They have they they do arbitration and uh, presumably also order the executions. Uh, they you know they enforce things. They hold events. They have a an established system um, that includes slavery. They have all sorts of things. I mean, there's 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 a local economy that's built around them. Um, they they have their own money. They don't take republic credits. Uh, as as we know, so just such a, a a unique construct that that was there. Yeah, and it, Tatooine sort of perpetually exists in this um, this weird state because they they are beyond the boundaries of the Republic. They don't they're not an official Republic world, and they don't have mm-hmm. a central government on Tatooine other than the the huts sort of fill that vacuum. And you see things occur on Tatooine that just, you know, are abhorrent and have long been illegal on other planets, whether it's uh, slavery or or, uh, the smuggling and trade in certain uh, illegal items like spice. And, uh, you know, the Republic either doesn't care or doesn't have the, the, you know, forces to really do much about it. The Empire takes ultimately a similar stance because by the time of A New Hope, you have somewhat of an imperial presence on Tatooine, but, um, you know, largely they're not in the business of trying to police that world and and bring it into compliance with any larger rule. And so, you know, that leaves a vacuum of, of power where you've got citizens that could do things like, you know, pay you for protection and, and whatnot or... or provide you goods and services and and uh, you know a criminal organization like the hut sees that as a great opportunity to sweep in and even the jedi sort of recognize that this is a situation beyond even their control uh, you know there's this sort of back and forth about uh with qui-gon about slavery and and how padme just can't fathom that slavery still exists in the galaxy and, you know, Qui-Gon's response ultimately is that, you know, we, we can't really do a whole lot to change this right now. You know, we've got a, a mission to, to go on. It's bad. Um, you know, I wish we could save everyone here, but we just can't. And um, I, I think it's a real turning point for Padme in her life um, that, that sort of propels her forward into not that she wasn't already on a... a an arc of, of being involved politically and whatnot, but that's a real motivator for her. And, and the issue of slavery in particular is something that, that especially as Anakin becomes a part of her life, becomes a real uh, focal point and something that drives her. Yeah. Um, and, and we, we, we see I don't know, a, a lot of these differences just kind of come to fruition and it creates these uh, uh, occasional points of conflict, for a lot of the characters as, as they, they work to overcome a lot of this. Um, and, and we do see kind of some, some interesting alliances come into this where we have, um, I don't think we've really talked about it a lot, but this, this, uh, basically partnership between the Gungans and the Naboo who have been largely separated for, for a, a very long period of time. Basically the, the, the Gungans had an issue with the Naboo. The Naboo seemed to largely ignore the Gungans because they lived underwater. Uh, so th- it was kind of an out of sight, out of mind type of thing. And it wasn't until they realized that uh, 
as as was mentioned, they have a, a symbiotic relationship. They are the the two sentient populations that occupy this planet. And if uh, and and truly, even like their economies aren't even connected, their ways of living aren't even connected. But if the Trade Federation is going to occupy the planet, that's going to be a total game changer for all of them. Um, so that we do then end up having this this alliance, which was was unlikely, but obviously makes sense. Um, and and they they come together uh, and and join forces, and and you know you see some very different tactics. You have differences in technology. Um, the, the Gungan technology is is largely more organically derived. Um, whereas the, the, uh, Naboo forces are kind of more modern, um, a little more analogous to us or to what we would see in the rest of kind of the, the, the Star Wars galaxy, if you will. So that, that does give us some, some interesting nuances and, and that's particularly represented. And you kind of mentioned some of this before Tom was when we did see, uh, this battle, which was largely Gungan forces against, the Trade Federation troops, and you have this army of mechanics, uh, as, as the Gungan <laughs> said, uh, versus their forces who, I mean, they had beasts of burden who were pulling around uh, carts with, strangely enough, a really cool techie thing with the booms, which were were these, uh, they had like explosive plasma in them, which was a really cool thing. It was like, wow, that's like that. And the shield generators were like this really interesting diametrically opposed tech that the Gungans had, but largely it was okay. You see these like almost dinosaur like creatures that the Gungans have versus this really high tech droid army, uh, facing each other. And you saw obviously advantages and disadvantages to, to, to both in, in a lot of ways, you know, the, the, the Gungans had brains, and and that was any successes that they did have on the battlefield, which were few because simply they were overwhelmed. But their ability to improvise, adapt, and overcome locally to the things that were happening to them, I think, was a big benefit. But, you know, as you said before, the Trade Federation doesn't care. They're going to throw thousands and thousands of resources at something until they can make it stop, um, un- until they get their way. And and that's something that we see through the entire uh, prequel series, is is that happening? So um, we are going to hit a, a couple of our, our kind of side uh, things here, talking about our our funny moments and some of our military things. Um, Tom, I'll, I'll let you lead those uh, those items there for us. You know, Jar Jar gets a lot of hate, maybe less so in recent years, but he has historically gotten a lot of hate. I saw. Phantom Menace when I was 14 when it hit the theaters and mm-hmm. I, like to this day Jar Jar still makes me laugh I think he's like yeah uh, you know obviously he's got his flaws as a character but I think they're like some of my favorite moments in the Phantom Menace are his comedic relief this you know he's filling the gap that C-3PO and R2 can't because they're you know only together for a tiny portion of the movie I mean uh, you know whether it's uh, my favorite, my favorite moment in the entire movie is where <clears throat> they're eating and he's got no manners at the Skywalker table, <laughs> and he sticks out his tongue and and <clears throat> Qui Gon in a show both to him and really to Anakin uh, snatches his tongue in midair. 
mm-hmm. and tells him to stop. Either that or the uh, the, the moment where he's, uh, uh, I, th- I think it's a three-way tie. That one, the moment where he steps in poop in Moss Espa as he's walking. <laughs> <laughs> and then the moment where a, uh, a, a what is it, uh, an EOP uh, farts at mm. the Padre yeah, yeah. starting line and he smells it. Just, I, you know, it's classic Star Wars goofiness and he sort of embodies a lot of that. So, to, I, you know, to the folks that really don't like him, I'm like, lighten up. It's Star Wars. Like, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's a goofy character. And then my other, my other favorite one, even though this wasn't designed as any kind of comedy, is Sio Bibble, the, the gray haired, uh, bearded governor mm-hmm. of uh Theed and he's his sort of alarmist attitude toward everything ultimately he ends up being right about true everything true but the, the dude is like <laughs> immediately the sky is falling for everything yeah 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 no i love yeah. so people in jar jar what about you i mean yeah you know obviously the jar jar stuff some of the anakin stuff was just uh you know, it, they're not meant to be funny moments in the film. And, and as you said, it, it's Star Wars and it is fundamentally made for kids. But clearly, you know, we've had an hour and a half of discussion on, poli- on political and military stuff. So there's there's certainly still enough for, for adults to enjoy with this. But some of the stuff with Anakin um, sometimes was just a little too uh, convenient, you know, in, in, in terms of, of, of plot stuff. Uh, and, you know... Some hardcore Star Wars folks might say, well, you know, that it was the will of the force and that's what guided him to. No, there's just some goofy stuff and, 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 and it's okay. That can, that can just be as it is. Um, (laughs) you know, there are some things just, I mean, as a Star Wars fan, I mean, I would love to be talking about Darth Maul and like the epic lightsaber battle there with, with him and Qui-Gon and, and Obi-Wan all that, but that, that doesn't fit necessarily within the, the the scope of the stuff that we're talking about here but there's some really terrific epic stuff that that comes out of this um the soundtrack for this movie is incredible um i know i've, I've deviated from the funny stuff but i'm it's, there's there's a lot of enjoyment that i really get from this movie and i i've learned through the years like it was initially one of those things where i liked it and then it was i i did kind of go through this phase for a few years of wow you know the movie's really childish and it's not that deep and and then I realized, no, the movie really is incredibly deep and sets up a lot of stuff. Um, and I've come to appreciate that. I've come to appreciate Jar Jar. I, I, I like, you know, he, he goes from, from being uh, a, a banished outcast to being a, uh, a, a general. And later on, we see him as a representative of, of the planet of Naboo. It's a, the dude has an amazing career, amazing yeah. career. Um, there's yeah. even some speculation that maybe he's actually behind all this, but we're not going to get into that right now. <laughs> I will say my last point on that is this movie moves like yes. you, you, you don't realize it, but it moves at a pretty epic pace. It moves faster than, uh, uh, than a new hope does yes. by a oh, long, tremendously. a long stretch. Yeah. Um, and the, the, the piece and, and this will be all I say on the defense of the prequels. The thing that I always come back to with uh, th- this dislike of the prequels is, y- you know, you don't, A, you don't have to like all of Star Wars. And it, it should not ruin your like of Star Wars to not like a Star Wars movie as much or to not like it at all. 
Um, you know, it might, but, but what I really get back to is the complaints that I regularly hear and I've heard for the last 21 years about the Phantom Menace can really be boiled down to about 10 minutes of film time, 10 to 12 minutes of film time. And there's a cut of the movie that a fan cut, it's like the Phantom Menace 2.0 or something like that on YouTube that I think is still out there. But it cuts down, it, it, it cuts down Jar Jar's role. It cuts down sort of historically the things that, you know, folks that really do not like Phantom Menace have centered on. And go watch that version of Phantom Menace and tell me that it's not a, a you know, a very good Star Wars movie. Uh, you know, that your, your concerns are all addressed in that. And so that's, uh, you know, the, the way I characterize it is I don't, I don't rank movies uh, strictly based on likes and dislikes. The way I look sure. at it is if I've got two hours of time to watch a Star Wars movie, which movie am I going to be more prone to put in or to, to pick on Disney Plus? And, you know, Phantom Menace ranks lower than uh, uh, Return of the Jedi or Empire, but it doesn't mean I love it any less. It's, you know, that that's the, the lens that I see it through. Uh, so in any event, normally we do know your military lingo, but because that doesn't really apply, I mean, the Star Wars universe sort of twists it and, and turns it. <laughs> I thought what would be better for the Star Wars episodes is know your Star Wars military trivia. There you go. And I, I won't beat anybody over the head with like stupid stuff that everybody knows, but some, some oddballs. So... Uh, whenever you ask who the, the commander of the Gungan army is, you get Folks, one this, of two this, answers. This, by the way, is just Tom showing off. But that's well, a, it's I, assisting. Well, just, just humor him. Just humor it's him. assisting everyone. It's, <laughs> it's interesting factoids. You watch the movie maybe in a different way. Yes. So everybody always says either Captain Tarples or or uh, General Jar Jar Binks get put in charge. In reality, mm -hmm. it's a, a Gungan you do not see on screen. <laughs> Named General Seal, C-E-E-L. Uh, he is the Gungan commander of ground forces there on the uh, the Great Grass Plains. Uh, captain Tarples is just a captain, so if you know your military ranks, he's, you know, he's a company grade officer, but, uh, you know, he's he's probably mid-level. Uh, and, and Jar Jar, I would, I would say his rank is probably... He's like, you know, the, the average guy that, that got like a battlefield commission in the civil war like oh you, <laughs> you 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 support our cause and you've done a couple good things in your life welcome to being a brigadier general so he's not in full command of their forces uh tim you already mentioned the second one that i had on my list the buma that's mm -hmm. the b-o-o-m-a that's the technical name <laughs> for the ordnance that uh the gungans use these yes. uh these energy balls. Some of them are really large. They're, they're fundamentally the artillery of, of the Gungans. Others are, uh, you know, much more portable and kind of hand sized. They're kind of like a, like a grenade type of thing. Yep. So they, they utilize these things in, in, in different ways. I believe also got a, that I misspoke. An electric quality. Yes. Yeah. Um, I believe also that I misspoke earlier. Um, I think I said Um three. It was actually Um nine. Who was the? Yeah, I didn't want to correct the, you. Oh, but. you caught it too. You sh you should have corrected me. You should have corrected <laughs> me. Yes, yeah, so it, it was Um nine who was the battlefield commander for the droid army. Yeah, this is so. This last one, the last of the the know your Star Wars military trivia, is one that that I learned more recently as I was looking at a uh, 
one of these visual guide books because uh, it's not apparent in the movie. The command ship that you see at the start of the movie that that Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan land on is not the same ship that commands the droid army or controls the droid army at the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. The ship at the beginning, if you'll notice, has a lot less of the antenna array on it. That ship is called the the Sakak. I I won't even spell it for you. Uh, (laughs) It's commanded by a a Neimoidian spelling. (laughs) Yeah, we won't get into Star Wars spelling B. But that's the Sakak. It it is not a droid control ship. Uh, but it was in command of their forces. It's under the command of Dalti Dauphine, the, the Nemoidian. It switches out. The Sakak leaves the system and the droid control ship that Anakin destroys that you see at the end of it, which is also still controlled by Dalti Dauphine, is called the Vutun Pala. And as best as I can tell, because the movie never mentions those ships' names, but they are different. The models are different. Uh, the distinction was made in this starfighters and starships book um written by pablo hidalgo uh, you know within the last three or four years so it's like a running correction on it but it does make sense because you watch the movie and those two ships aren't the same and i have to believe pablo was like this is like a long itch of pablo's like watch and hey those two models aren't the same we need to address this sure but obviously we're not going to go do anything to the movie so we'll we'll clarify it in a supplemental book so you know when when you're watching phantom menace with your family and your kids you point out that that's the vatoon pala at the end and that's know your star wars military fantastic fantastic well, folks, thanks for sticking with us uh, through this. We we hope that we were able to give you a completely different look uh, at Star Wars, at, at The Phantom Menace specifically. And for those of you who are uh, more fans of our, our more traditional war film reviews, uh, hopefully, maybe this, you know, hopefully maybe you are a Star Wars fan, but if you aren't and you have actually, like, stuck with us through you... Um, because yes, yeah, Star Wars does have some <laughs> silliness to it, but there really is some some really interesting deep stuff that you can come to appreciate from it. Um, we are, as we promised, we are going to alternate between Star Wars films and other uh, other war films. So our next episode, uh, we are going back to World War II, uh, and we're going to um, kind of a, a portion of the war that's not often covered in films, and that is uh, the Eastern Front. So we are going to go to the Battle of Stalingrad. Uh, we're going to be talking Enemy at the Gates from 2001. Great movie with uh, Rachel Weisse and um, uh, and Ed Harris. So, uh, oh, and Joe Fine and Jude Law also. So pretty good cast in this. Uh, so check that out and, uh, and then join us for the next episode, which will be Enemy at the Gates. And now, the moment you've all been waiting for. I mean, this is better than even Star Wars itself. <laughs> the legal disclaimer. <laughs> I think it's just you Pretty and me much. at this point, Tim. <laughs> Everyone else is like, episode. <laughs> but <laughs> Bye-bye. Dispatches from the Front is not endorsed by anyone affiliated with the films we discuss and is intended for entertainment purposes only. All names associated with and references to the films we discuss are registered trademarks and or copyrights of their respective trademarks and copyright holders. Random Chatter Media and Dispatches from the Front are not affiliated with those trademark or copyright holders.
And all original content of Dispatches from the Front is the intellectual property of Random Cheddar Media, unless otherwise indicated. There was an episode back when we were doing Band of Brothers originally that I read that in Jar Jar's voice. Yes, I, seem to I remember. believe you. I believe you did. I I might have to go back and actually pull that audio clip and just kind of <laughs> just just yeah sub yeah. that in here. Yeah, we should not endorsed by anybody. Uh, all right, folks, uh, if, if you're still with us now, thank you very much. Uh, and we will catch you for the next episode. Be safe, be healthy, be smart. Bye-bye.